0: Amen and amen. Anybody else excited to be here tonight? I am. You want to grab your Bibles, take out those swords, those sharp instruments that rightly divide between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit, the word, the truth. Turn to chapter 2 here in the book of Revelation as we continue with the seven churches, our third part, the second church, the church at Smyrna. As you look at this second church period, as we make sure that we understand each time, there's that practical part, there's that perennial part, and there's that prophetic part of each one of these churches. And tonight, the persecuted church, that church that was the first century after the Apostles, a church that suffered greatly under the persecution of Rome, a church that is typed in our world today in the persecuted church in Iran and Iraq and in China. We know very little of this type of life here in America. We know very little in general about persecution, period, because we've lived in such wonderful blessing, even in the midst of great difficulty. Even if you take into account the various wars beginning with the Revolutionary War, all the way up until our modern day and time, and those uh, military engagements that we've had throughout the history of our country, nothing that the U.S. has ever gone through Uh, compares to the persecution of the first century church as far as Christians are concerned. Because the Christian church then was nearly obliterated, it was nearly wiped out. And in fact, it was generally a death sentence to be known as a Christian. And so this church, exemplified here in the church at Smyrna, existed from around 100 A.D., to about 312 A.D., and it was a very fearful church, as you might imagine, in that sense, practically. If you happen to say, hey, I belong to the church at Smyrna, that's the equivalent of saying, hey, Romans, come kill me. It was a very ritualistic church. There was a lot of hocus-pocus that went on in that church, because the church itself tried to blend in, it tried to fit in, and it was in a very Greek city, but mostly it was the persecuted church. And so tonight, we'll pick up in verse 8, down through verse 11, the church at Smyrna. So let's pray and ask God to work in us through his word tonight. Lord, we have come again just to deposit ourselves in your presence. Lord, to invite you to speak into our lives, and Father, tonight as we take a brief respite from a busy week, Lord, as we try and turn off the things that uh, happened at work today, Lord, maybe the things when we got home, perhaps something going on uh, in our lives, maybe something financial, perhaps uh, provisional, maybe there's something going on with our children. Lord, would you just give us this, this hour? Lord, this little bit of time, this window, this one twenty-fourth of this thing that we call this day, so that you could speak to us. We have ears, Lord, let us hear what the Spirit has to say. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 8, and to the angel at the church at Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last who was dead, And came to life. And so he again keeps the theme of remembering that there is one who was. There is one who is. There is one who is to come. There is the Alpha. There is the Omega. There is the first and the last. You see the repetitive theme throughout the book of Revelation where Jesus is describing himself as the one and only. None like himself. The one who was dead and came to life. For I know your works... He goes on to say, and we'll see each time that we venture into the life of one of these churches that the Lord has something to say about each of them. For five of them, he will say something in response that is very negative. For two churches, he says nothing negative, but simply speaks to their existence and speaks to the life that they live. The church at Smyrna is one of those. This is the shortest letter to all of the churches. And that's because largely I believe that their mere existence should remind us of the persecuted church in the world today. There has always been a persecuted church. He says, I know your works. You have a New King James Bible, you notice a a comma there, and tribulation. Not speaking of the tribulation, Not speaking of Daniel's 70th week, not speaking of the time of Jacob's trouble, isn't speaking of that day of the Lord spoken of by the prophet Joel. He's speaking of tribulation, trouble, oppression, being pressed in on from the outside, and again, in our world, there are many things that trouble us. There are many things that oppress us. There are many things that go on in our world that we could say uh, we're under some tribulation. So there's been some tribulation in the world all along, but not like this church knew. And notice he says poverty. But to help us understand it, but you're rich if you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you are fabulously wealthy. You may not have anything in this life, but you have the one thing that matters for all eternity, and you are rich. Amen? And for us, I think we need to remember that frequently and often. Because we associate wealth and richness with material things. We I'm I'm surprised at how many, you know, books and magazines and and if you travel and you go, you know, one of the the only things you can do in an airport is wander through the, the magazine racks, right, there in the airport and you like you know famous yachts and famous planes and famous guns and famous whatever and you know the most expensive this in the world the most expensive that in the world and the biggest homes and then there's log homes and then there's fancy homes and it's just like everything is is materialistic driven in our country and again if you have money praise the Lord God he gave it to you for a purpose he wants you to use it for his glory It's not to to shame anyone who has resources at their disposal, but they are still God's resources. They belong to him. They're always going to belong to him. It all belongs to him. The problem with most people is they, they look at the world through the world's eyes and not through the Lord. And so when they see something that equates to what we call riches, they think that that person is rich. These were some of the most destitute people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. They faced persecution much like the Yazidis have done in Iraq recently, much like the Syrian Christians in Syria, hiding in fear for their lives, cowering underneath great oppression, much like Pastor Saeed is doing currently imprisoned for his faith in Iran. Though he's in prison, he's still very rich. And what he has, the Iranian government cannot take from him. Because it's not stuff of this earth, it's of heaven. I know your works, your tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And I want to make a very clear distinction. God's people, God's chosen people, the Jewish people, are still God's chosen people, the Jews. They are still the people of promise. They are still the people of the covenant. And one day, all Israel will be saved. But during this day and time, much like the time of Jesus, the greatest antagonists of the early church were often people of the Jewish faith. Not simply Jews by birth, but of the Jewish faith. Because they had lived for centuries believing that they had the one and only way to God. And so it became something very exclusive for them. And so even in Judaism, there were those in Judaism who had a brand of Judaism that was even more exclusive than what Judaism actually was. Because let's face it, the Jewish people knew the one true God. No one else on the earth, had a relationship with Jehovah God the way the Jewish people had a relationship. No one else had the temple. No one else had the sacrifices. With no one did the Lord wander in the wilderness for 40 years save the Jewish people. No one else had his presence. No one else had his word. And so they were a very, very, very specifically and wonderfully blessed people. And so as God made the covenants, beginning with the Abrahamic covenant, going through the Davidic covenant, as he was making through these these covenants with the the children of Israel, they, they really did reach a place to where they knew they were special but God never intended them to beat up anybody else on the face of the earth with that wonderful chosenness that they possessed. They were supposed to be the light to the world. They were supposed to believe in Messiah and then take the voice of the Messiah into the world. And instead, they rejected the Messiah when he came. And so he says to these Jews who were no doubt Jewish by birth, but were claiming to speak for Yahweh. Look, your synagogue is a synagogue of Satan. You don't want that on the door of your church. Not a great name. And notice how he now goes on to settle down this fearful church. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. And notice the specificity with which he speaks. You're going to suffer. It, it, It doesn't leave open any room that there isn't going to be suffering. There's going to be suffering. These things which you are going to suffer. And it's coming quick. For indeed the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And that would happen. That you may be tested. Now I'm not sure if you catch what that actually says or not. That says that God's doing the testing, doesn't it? Because he obviously knows it's going to happen. He says you are going to be tested. I know this is going to happen. I'm going to be there with you. He even says you'll have tribulation for ten days. But be faithful unto death. It's a pretty harsh sentence when you think about it. Some of you are going to go to prison. You're going to have tribulation ten days, and the word that's translated there days is not the normal word that we would have days. It means a period of time, unspecified, like a, a day worth of weeks, for a week's worth of years, as in Daniel's case, in Daniel chapter 9, it's speaking of a period of time that will be defined by something else going on. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you, notice, the crown of life, the victor's crown. I will give you the Stephanos. I'll give you the crown of that person who overcomes. For he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That he who overcomes shall not be hurt. And notice, first occurrence here in the book of Revelation, by the second death. And we'll look at that in some detail in a bit. A brief history of this area of the world. Again, remember, this is largely modern-day Turkey. Uh, when you look at this particular province Uh, About 40 miles north of of Ephesus, where it is to this day, Um, Smyrna was touted to be perhaps the most beautiful place in all of Asia Minor. If you look at where it's located, at the end of the mouth of a very long long bay, and it sits at the end of that bay, and at the end of that bay is a very long set of rolling hills that rolls up to quite an elevated place, some four almost 4,000 feet. Uh, above the Mediterranean Sea, so it slopes up gently at first and then rises to a pinnacle at the end of this canyon, and then at the end of this canyon is the city of Smyrna. And it was a coastal city. It was also a harbor, uh, at the time one of the greatest in the Roman world. It stood at the end of the great road coming from the Hermus Valley. The Hermus Valley was the valley at which Homer uh, set out upon his, his great quest to conquer Europe. It was from there that he uh, would cross across what we know now as modern-day Italy and reach the Alps and would take his elephants and cross over the Alps. Like Ephesus, it was the center of the imperial cult. And so as the imperial cult uh, would gather together in any city, that became automatically a tax-free city. Whenever a city was relinquished to be an imperial city, the court of Rome was held there. The thing that they gained... Because they would automatically have a bad reputation with their neighbors because you would have to go to Smyrna to be tried in a Roman court. So you got to trade there for free. So it was an extremely prosperous city. And so that extremely prosperous city did what all prosperous cities in the world at that time did. They used that wealth for their own selfish gain. There in that particular city, as you would rise up these ever-increasing-heighted hills. Each one would have a temple on it. The first level had the temple of Tiberius and, and Leba, his wife, and also a temple to the Senate of Rome. And so you can kind of imagine looking up this kind of staircase scenario of temple after temple after temple after temple. The streets themselves, uh, Golden Street was the main street that ran all the way from the harbor all the way to the temple of Zeus the very final temple at the end of the valley. There was a giant Acropolis there on the top of Mount Pagos. There were temples to Asclepius, the Roman god of medicine. temple of, of Aphrodite was on the right side of that road. And so as you look up there, all you could see was these gleaming Roman uh, buildings and Greek temples. That's it. And so naturally when you came to the city, you couldn't help but be in awe of what had happened through the fabulous wealth of this governing body. And the reason I share this with you is this. We, in the same way, in our country, often come to the place of looking at the buildings rather than the Creator who owns them. We get the same view sometimes. We look down our streets at our homes, it's pretty hard not to travel to a major metropolitan area in the United States and look up at the fabulous skyscrapers. Ever been to the top of the Sears Tower, or whatever they're calling it this week, they change its name seemingly every other week. Somebody buys the advertising on top, and so you get to name it. And Look out across the Great Lakes, incredible view. Monumental accomplishments of mankind but how many people live in poverty because of the wealth that's tied up in that beauty? saw an advertisement today. Walmart, I understand, is going to be spending a billion dollars in raising wages and training and college education for their employees. Would that every corporation in America would take their... Profits and do those types of things that would be very very helpful but that's not the way the world is wired it wasn't then it isn't now and so as you looked at that area of the world life in Smyrna was really good and interestingly enough the largest uh, athletic venue in the ancient world was in Smyrna they had a stadium that sat about 20,000 people that's the equivalent of what Staple Center holds, by the way. Except it was made out of stone. And they loved their athletics and they cheered wildly for their particular person that they wanted to win the Greek games. And so the Lord begins by saying, look, when all this is wrapped up I'm still going to be here. I am the first. I am the last. He gives us two polar opposites. These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Basically, Jesus gives himself a title with each of the messages to the church, and he does so descriptively. He says, when you look up at these things, and if you go there to, to Smyrna today, There is a little tiny ruin of the Temple of Zeus on the top of Mount Pagos, the Acropolis that used to stand there. And yeah, you can kind of sort of see where it was. And there's a few columns left of it. But our king reigns. And so Jesus is saying, Look, when it's all said and done, this place will fade out of history. But you who overcome, you'll receive the crown of life. You're going to outlive these beautiful buildings that you see. And to help explain that, he says, look, I'm the one who was dead and came back to life. So he gives us two pictures. One who is literally life eternal, the one who conquered death, who was dead and is alive. In his humanity, he rose from the dead. In his divinity, he paid the price for our sins. He did two things. And in doing so, he conquered the one thing that almost all human beings fear the most, and that's death. You want an interesting thing to Google sometime? Google famous last words and find out what matters to people. I saw one from Desiarnes. You remember, if you're old like me, you remember... I love Lucy Desi Arnaz his wife Lucy on his deathbed he said I hope the show does well that's kind of a lame thing you you see you can tell what is valuable to people by what they say when they get ready to take their last breath Jesus said look Your last breath here is your first breath there. Because I defeated death. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He gives us that victory. And because he's done so, when Jesus rose from the dead, in essence, he killed death to those who believe in him. He took death and took it out of the equation for us. Yeah, you're still going to die. But notice how it says you won't taste that second death. And that's the one you need to be really, 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 really worried about. The first death, unless the Lord comes for us tonight, raptures his church home, first death we're all going to experience at some point in time. But you want to skip that second one. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54 begins this way, and so then this corruptible is put on incorruption, this mortal is put on immortality, and it should be brought to pass then the saying that death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? You see, can you imagine the look on Satan's face when Jesus rose? Think about it for a second. I didn't see that coming. I thought I had him. I had him totally... Completely bound up with the fear that one day they're going to die. And then, what's happening? For the sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. I love that. You see, Jesus took care of the law for us. Amen? Aren't you glad he took care of the law for you? Because if we're still under the law, we're all dead still in our trespasses and sins. You're not keeping the law, and neither am I. It's not going to happen. You'll be driving down the freeway, and somebody go by in a nicer car than yours. You'll have another God before him. Amen? Think about it for a second. Think about the things that you think on. But he conquered that. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your sufferings not in vain in the Lord. Your perseverance not in vain in the Lord. The stuff that you go through in your life is not in vain in the Lord. If you're in the Lord, this life is not in vain. But without Him... This life is nothing but vanity. Amen? It really is. Without the Lord, this life that we live on this earth is about as vain as anything gets in the universe. Think about it. If the only thing that you're alive for is to accumulate stuff that was made by somebody who wants it to fall apart, right? So that you can buy another one. You, you live in a house that if you're really fortunate, maybe is going to last until you, you know, you kick the bucket. You go in and, you know, now in order to get good food, you have to buy stuff that, you know, free range chicken breast, 175.95 you know. <laughs> Honey, look, I got the organic broccoli and we can't make our mortgage payment. If this is all there is, we're in trouble, amen? That's why when people say, "Wow, well, you know, I live for this or I live for that, if you're not living for Christ, you ain't living. So the Lord is trying to put this into perspective for the people in Smyrna, because their life was going to get seriously ugly. But then there's serious heaven. And so he gives them that heavenly perspective, He says to them, I know your works. Notice what he he gives them here. They were standing their ground in an evil day. Verse 9, it says here in Revelation 2, For I know your works, tribulation, poverty, but you're rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. He says, look, I, I know that there's some great things that are going on in your church. There are great things going on in this church. But praise God, those great things are because we have a great God. Because we serve a wonderful Savior. And because our eyes are not fixed on this earth, but they're fixed on heaven. Because even great churches eventually become piles of dust in God's economy. Because the church isn't the building, the church is the people. And so he makes the distinction here. He says, look, you're going to go through tribulation. You're you're going to have pressure. You're going to have distress. You're going to be under attack. Anything that crushes your soul, I know about it. And most of us have had times when our soul's been crushed. Amen? There are very few people who escape that while they're here on this earth. Some people have more soul-crushing events than others. There's no question there. And can I tell you that to the person who's going through those things the worst thing in the world that you can say to them is, well, you know, God knows. Surely God does know. But he also cares. He's not saying don't worry about these things in the sense that you don't need Just pretend they're not there. You know, a spoonful of sugar really does help the medicine go down. <laughs> Mary Poppins was right. And so just buck up, it'll be fine. No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying, look, you're going to go through serious bouts of depression. You're, you're going to have everything that you hold dear stripped away from you. Your life, if you look up horrible life in the dictionary, your picture's going to be there. But it's only for a time. And he says, fear not, because I've overcome that. The word that's used here, the Greek word that's used for poverty, actually carries the connotation of destitution. There are two of them. He's using the Greek word toshas here, and that particular word means you have nothing. You're you're going through dumpsters looking for food. You got nothing. We have those people in our world today. Then it was the average state of people. You know, I was back in the former Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union, and you traveled into what were then still the Union of Socialist Republics, the Soviet Socialist Republics. When you would go into a grocery store, the the way things worked is they'd build these huge grocery stores that looked exactly like grocery stores here. They kind of had the Costco vibe almost. But before the fall of the, the Iron Curtain, when you would walk into those grocery stores, there would literally be entire aisles of exactly the same product. there would just be like nothing but cans of beans down one aisle. And so when you walked in, you'd look at it, and wow, this is a really well-stocked grocery store. And you realize there were eight things in the whole store. And it was 100,000 square feet of it. And I remember sitting there thinking and going, these guys look like they're rich, but they're absolutely destitute because there's only so many cans of beans one should eat. Amen? You know, just like pushing your cart home. You see, it looked really good. And when you looked at the people in Smyrna, you live in Smyrna? Oh, you live in Bel Air? And again, please don't take offense if I happen to name your city. I actually got a letter from, well, you said this about PV. I'm not trying to blaspheme you if you live on the hill. I'm simply making the statement that there are places that are nicer than others. Amen? In that sense. But when you get to heaven, you're not going to remember. Nobody's going to be, man, I sure wish I was back in 90210. (laughs) You're not going to be thinking that at all. You're going to be going, "Uh, tribulation, what? But these people had genuine poverty. They lived in a prosperous city, to be sure, but they were absolutely destitute, even in that absolute opulence that was around them. And if that wasn't bad enough, they were religiously persecuted by people who should know better because they had been persecuted. Isn't it crazy when you think about the Jewish people persecuting anybody when their whole history is a history of being persecuted? And yet they did. And before we point fingers at anyone, we're all capable of doing that. Let me ask you this question. How many times have you developed an absolute aversion to something that you yourself used to do? And now when someone else does it, all of a sudden it's like, whoa! can't believe they would do that. I mean, oh, that's right, I used to live that way. So all the Lord is trying to do here is say, look, these guys were persecuted from every side you can imagine. And the Lord didn't miss any of it. And even though these Jewish people claimed to be the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they weren't acting like God's chosen people. You see, even today, some people are pretenders. They call themselves Christians, and they're of the church of Satan. And I mean that quite literally. I'll speak a little bit to that issue in a couple of weeks on Sunday. It's crazy the things that pass in this world for churches. And so God says, look, you can be rich without wealth. You can be a victor even when it looks like you're a loser in me. Paul capped that thought off in Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 7. He says, those things which were gained to me, those things which everybody would look at and go, man, that's a big deal. I mean, you got the big promotion. You have the corner office. Notice you're driving, you know, a really nice car. You've got a, a, a nice house. You've got all those things. Those things are gained to me. I have counted loss for Christ. Yet I indeed count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish. And the word that's translated their rubbish in New King James is actually manure. I count them as manure. Useless. That I might gain Christ. To be found in him not having my own righteousness. Which is from the law. Remember Paul was a Hebrew. And he believed for a vast majority of his life. That righteousness came from being a Hebrew. Being right with God through the Jewish faith. He says but I just want to know the power of his resurrection. When we think about our own relationship with the Lord, it brings us to another place. That's a place of no fear. When I think of who I am in Christ, I mean, seriously, think about it for a second. If you're here tonight and you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, He is your Lord, this world has nothing it can threaten you with. Because ultimately, what's the worst thing that can happen to you if you're a human being as far as the world's concerned? You die, right? Somebody walks up to you and they they pull out a gun and they say, look, give me your wallet or I'm going to kill you. Even if they kill you, you win. Think about it. I'm not suggesting it isn't a bad thing. I'm not suggesting it won't bring harm and hurt and all those kind of things. But at the end of the day, for a believer in Christ, to leave this earth is to be present with the Lord Jesus. And so he's giving them this incredible eternal perspective in the midst of intense persecution. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer, for indeed the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days, but be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Look, I know these things are coming. And if God is God, he had to do one of two things, either actually purpose for these things to happen or he allowed them to happen otherwise he's not god and so he allows this persecution to happen to them and for most of us we would say well he almost caused it then he allowed it to occur don't fear these things don't be put to flight don't be afraid don't be a chicken stand up to the trial because when we do that when we're in this world we stand up for the lord the world has to take notice the world looks at what you do and what i do in a very real sense and when we name the name of christ and we walk the talk we don't we don't just talk it we walk it and then something comes into our lives which is not good and we go through it we come out on the other side maybe it is something that you have cancer it's some horrible thing that happens in your life and it's still horrible All things work together for the good for those who love God. Not all things are good. Anybody that tells you, wow, I'm so happy I got cancer today, ask them to go see a psychiatrist. (laughs) Getting cancer is not something to be happy about. However, God can even work that together throughout the period of one's life, throughout the time you're on this earth, for some type of eternal good both for you and for those around you and for the witness of the Lord in this world. That stuff can be bad, but it can still be used for good, work together for good. And so he's really saying to them, look, these things are going to work out for your good. In these tests, your, char- your character is going to come out. These 10 days that are being referred to here, I believe, are actually 10 periods of, of, church, of time during this church's existence. And if you look at the history of the Caesars during that time, for the next ten, they would begin in the time that this was written, the time that John uh, writes, up until the time his, his life was uh, thrown into prison, you would have had Nero uh, there on the throne in Rome. And that was a time of great persecution. Followed, following him was the emperor Domitian. Domitian, uh, basically, his rule ran out about the time John finished this letter as the Lord's Uh, uh, recounting it to him to to send to these churches. Following him would be the great emperor Trajan. If you go to Rome today, you can see Trajan's tower. You can actually go there. It's 134 feet tall. It has this uh, encyclical mural that goes all the way around it, carved in in all these stone panels of his great victories. And he conquered uh, most of Europe at the time. But in doing so, he also burned St. Ignatius at the stake. Uh, Domitian is the one who banished John to the island of Patmos. Uh, Nero used to burn Christians alive and feed them to the lions in Rome. Marcus Aurelius would come on after that. His favorite thing to do for entertainment was to behead Christians. And then he would place their heads on pike poles along his road into his royal garden. Give him some type of fun, I suppose. After him was Severus. Uh, he again got in the habit of burning, crucifying, and taking Christians into the, into the arena to be used as gladiatorial uh, targets. Maximus followed him. He also executed Christians. Uh, Decius, who would follow, and each one of these got more and more severe with the type of uh, attempts to wipe out Christianity. Valerian uh, was the one who executed the bishop of Carthage. And finally, Diocletian, the last of all the emperors, the tenth one, Uh, by the time he came on the scene, he's the one that was actually responsible for burning every last copy of the Scriptures that he could get his hands on. So not only did he kill the Christians themselves, but he attempted to wipe out the Word of God. But he noticed anything? It didn't work. We're still here. And they're real gone. You see, in God's timing. That was actually a brief time of tribulation that we experience here on earth. It didn't seem brief to those who were going through it. I guarantee you that. But in light of eternity, it's a brief time. Our lives are a brief time. That's why James calls them a vapor, right? Your life is but a vapor. You're here for a moment. You're gone tomorrow. doesn't matter how long you live. It's not very long in light of eternity. Amen? So no matter how long you suffer, it's not very long in light of the glory that you're going to experience is what's really being said. So don't fear. Because the worst thing the world can do is take your life. As horrible as that is, it's nothing in light of the glory that you're going to receive. Amen? That's why Second Corinthians Paul calls it our light afflictions. For a moment. But it's working in us a far more exceeding weight of glory. It's only for a time. He goes on to say, look, you just be faithful unto death. That's your job. That's really our job while we're here on earth. In a nutshell, we're here to be faithful unto death. To work these things out in our character, to allow God to use us for a period of time. And so as we think on these things, faithful Christians are the ones who are going to receive that Stephanos, that that victor's crown. And I don't know about you, can you imagine what it's going to feel like to receive a crown from the Lord Jesus? Oh, I happened to, you know, when I was in high school, I was, did fairly well and I was a National Merit Scholar and did the uh, Washington Lincoln Laurels for Leaders and all those kind of things. And uh, during my senior year, I was in the, the state Senate for, you know, for youth leadership and all that kind of stuff. But I had an opportunity, then Governor Ronald Reagan. I uh, actually came to this banquet where I was going to receive this award, and I, and I was sitting there just shaking. I'm going to get to meet the governor. And when you're a high schooler and you're going to meet the governor of the state that you live in, it's kind of a big deal. Nothing in the universe compared to meeting the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? Amen? I've been around all kinds of people in Washington, D.C. If you come in my office, you'll see me pictures of Governor Huckabee and Connie and I and all this kind of stuff. Nothing compares to Jesus. And one day he's going to say, well done. That wreath then was usually some kind of foliage or gold or silver that looked like foliage. It was a a token of public honor for distinguished achievement we're packing right now for our move down here to South Bay. And I'm finding all those boxes that you think you threw out like five decades ago. You know, the ones that have your junior high uh, president's athletic achievement awards. You remember those little patches that you used to get for throwing a softball or whatever it was? And you go through those and there's meritorious achievement. And then there's all these things. Perfect attendance. Anybody ever get a perfect attendance? Yeah, I had like 400 of those. I wasn't allowed to miss school under threat of death. But you go through them, and you're like, oh, wow. And every one of them has some kind of, you know, meritorious achievement award. Imagine when Jesus puts the crown of perseverance on your head and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my kingdom of rest. You kind of walk around sporting your crown. Check it out. Jesus gave me this, you know. It's gonna be an awesome day, don't you think? I mean, we're amen. Of course, what's actually gonna happen is you're gonna take that crown off and you're gonna throw it at his feet because you're not gonna be worthy to even stand in his presence. But he is gonna give you a crown one day. Actually, there's a bunch of them. We'll look at those in just a moment. He said, "He says, don't be afraid." And Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter ten, he says, "Look, don't be afraid of those who can only kill the body, but they can't kill the soul." He says, "You be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell." There's no real government power that holds sway over us. Think about it for a second. Now, by the way, every Christian needs to absolutely get out and vote. Vote for Jesus. The person who has the most character of Christ, vote for them. Amen? Amen? However, we're actually citizens of heaven. And because we're citizens of heaven, the things that go on on this earth, though we need to be concerned because there's a lot of people's lives that are affected by them, we want to be a great witness while we're here, in the end, it really isn't that big a deal. And so you're going to step into eternity one day And so what we need to really be concerned with is those things which are heavenly. Those medals we're going to get for distinguished service. There are actually five crowns that are mentioned in in Scripture. The incorruptible crown there in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. A crown of rejoicing. Man, do I want a crown of rejoicing. I can't wait to get that crown. I don't know what that crown's actually for specifically in my life. But I know if I have it, I get to do it. And I'm really, really looking forward to just rejoicing because we go through a lot of tough things while we're here on this earth, amen? How about the crown of life? Anybody looking forward to getting that one? I am. You're all going to get that particular crown. The crown of life is one you're going to get for sure. A crown of righteousness. Not because of your own righteousness, because of His. And finally, a crown of glory. I mean, how awesome will that be? You get to heaven, and all of a sudden, here's Jesus passing out crowns. You know all those crazy awards that we get now, they're not going to be much compared to the stack of crowns that you're going to get in heaven. And then when you remove them, and say, oh, Lord, unto you alone belongs the glory and the honor and praise. And we cast those crowns at his feet. How glorious a day will that be. And it tells us why. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice it says churches again. In each one of these uh, church settings, you're going to see a specific mention of the church itself and what's going on in the church and usually some type of problem with the church. And then he says, look, here's what the Spirit's saying to the churches, all of them throughout time. That's why we know these things are not just confined to this period of church history. It means something to us today. He who overcomes shall not be hurt. Notice this. By the second death. And some people confuse that. I think is that some kind of, you know, extra death that you go through? No, the the first one, you're going to be really dead after the first one. You'll be completely dead physically. But you will be very much alive in the spirit. And so when you pass from this life into the next life, you experience one death, the death of the body. And so Jesus says, look, you need to listen up. How's your hearing? So the question is, after you die, where are you going to be? Because there's two choices. You can either be absent from the body and present with the Lord, or You can spend some time in Hades, followed by the great white throne judgment and being cast eternally into hell. And so that first death, we die physically. The second death, we die spiritually, eternally, forever, if we don't receive the Lord Jesus. So the second death is very much worse than the first death. No other church, no other individual, no person can receive Christ for you. I talk to a lot of people and say, well, you know, my mom was this and my dad was that and my grandma went to church and, you know, we got prayed over, we got dunked, we got sprinkled. You know, we had every manner of religious experience you can possibly imagine. I know I'm a Christian. And I'll ask them very simply, have you ever invited Jesus Christ into your heart Have you ever asked him to forgive you of your sin because you are a sinner? And if they say no, I said, then it doesn't matter what your mom did. Doesn't matter what your dad did. Doesn't matter what your grandma did. Doesn't matter if your great-grandfather's great-grandfather's mother's uncle's aunt was a pastor. Somehow. What matters is, have you believed personally on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that is the only way that anyone ever comes to salvation. There is no other way and there is no other name. And so the Lord is saying, look, you need to be very, very, very concerned. Because you're all going to die physically. The question is, will you be an overcomer eternally? And there's only one way to accomplish that. That's by knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And that does not happen by osmosis. Some people believe that if they just were raised in a Christian family, that they if you ask almost any American, you're you're probably 80, 85% of the time, if they're a Christian, they're going to say yes. I go to the first universalist, Unitarian Church of Good Things. I pray. How many people do you know that will tell you I pray all the time? The question is, who are you praying to? Who are you praying through? Amen? Because you got to have that right. Otherwise, you might as well be praying to Kevin's guitar, it'll have about the same effect. A guitar can't save you. It's a nice guitar. But it has no capacity to, to make you escape that second death. It can even make heavenly sound, but it can't save you. You see, that first death is a separation of soul and spirit from the body, the second death is a separation of the soul and spirit from God. That's why we live in the age of grace, so that there's still an opportunity for those who desire. Do you remember as the story of Nicodemus unfolds there in John chapter 3? Do you remember what is said to him? You must be born again. You know why that is? Because if you're only born once, you're going to die twice. And if you're born twice, if you experience that second birth, you're going to die exactly once. That's the issue. There's no fear in that kind of love. In Christ, we die just once. And then glory. Amen? That was the encouragement to the church at Smyrna said, look, you're going to go through all this stuff. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be killed. You're you're going to be burned at the stake. You're going to be fed to lions. Your, Your homes are going to be forfeited. You're going to lose everything this world holds dear. But he's saying, look, as Paul would write to the Roman church, I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, things to come, nor any height or depth, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen? Romans 8. Jesus was saying the same thing to the church that's going through trouble, the persecuted church. Don't have any fear. Perfect love, just as First John tells us there in chapter 4, casts out that fear. And so as we think on these things, really the key is you're born once, you're born twice. That's the real question for all of us. To be born twice is to guarantee that second place is heaven. You want that. If you don't have that, there is no time like tonight to square that away. We have the worship team come back up. And as they come up, have some pastors come down front. I want to challenge you. If you're here tonight and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, there is no other way to escape that second death. He is the only way, he is the only truth, and he is the only life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. And so we're going to pray as the pastors come forward. If you're here and you need to do some business with God, I want to strongly encourage you don't leave this place without Jesus. You head home. Tomorrow is promised to no man, to no woman. You don't know. But I know this. What my Bible says is we're overcomers in him. What my Bible says is is, if you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ you'll be saved. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray right now that your Holy Spirit would come and invade this place tonight. Lord, a vast majority of us came tonight because we do know you and we do love you and we have believed and we have received and we are going to heaven and we will not taste that second death. But Lord, perhaps even tonight there's somebody here who's never made that profession of faith. They've wandered. Maybe there's some tonight that have wandered away from you, and Lord, they're just simply not sure where they stand. Your word declares that if we will confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God, to be cleansed of our sin is to have eternal life. And to have eternal life is to be guaranteed the overcomer's crown. And so God, we bless you for that, and we pray tonight that you would save those who maybe tonight are lost. Pray that they would come forward, receive your mercy, receive your grace as they pray and invite you in. Lord, we ask you to now just bless us as we go our way. Lord, we worship you. We praise you. We thank you. And all God's people said, amen.